Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. I want to talk about cups tonight, and I want to start by talking about cups that kids have, right? Now, I have three kids. They're amazing, Grace, Charlie, and Noah. And when they were little, uh, when we had three of them, we thought, oh, we'd better get them. Obviously, we get them plastic cups because kids throw stuff and drop stuff, and that's fine. We thought, we'll get them different colored cups. So we'll have a green one and a pink one and a blue one, and they'll know which cup is theirs. Now, if you're a parent, you know where the rest of this story is going. Because you can sit them down and go, hey, this is your cup. And they will go, yes, that's my cup. And then the next morning they'll go, I'm drinking from the other cup. Go, but no, 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 because this is your cup. Yeah, I don't care. I'm drinking from that cup. Similarly, you could put out three of the totally same color. And they could pick one and then go, no, I want what my brother has. Like, it's the same cup. Like, but if they want it, they're getting it. And don't think you could get out of this just by printing their name on it either. Because at some point they'll go, I don't care that it's not my name. I'm not drinking from this cup today. So give me their cup. And this is just what happens with kids. They will get the cup they want. You're not going to win the cup war. You're not going to win the cup war. Now, I don't know if you have a favourite cup like kids do. I do. I have a favourite coffee mug. I'm a big coffee drinker. This is my favourite coffee mug. I got it about 15 years ago when I lived in Japan. My friend gave it to me. And I love it because it's got all the animal noises that the Japanese think animals make. So apparently they make slightly different noises in Japan, which I love. And I've always thought it was hilarious. So here's the pig. The pig goes, boo-boo. I don't know how that works as a pig, but that's, that's the sound they make. Cows. Cows go, So it's not moo. It's mo. Mo instead of moo, which I actually like. And um, dogs say one one. I'm I'm not sure what dog says one one, um, but uh, little dog I think. But here's the point. Here's the point. I love this because it's a gift. It was from my friend who I love, and it is well loved. But this is kind of cracked and chipped on this side. You can sort of see it a little bit up on the top right there. And so I can only drink from it if I drink from the other side. So, and I do this because I'm a psychopath. So I'll, I'll, I'll fill it up with coffee and I'll, start, I'll go, oh, ooh, hang on, turn it around and start drinking it from the safe side because otherwise my mouth will bleed. <laughs> but I still do it because I love this cup, but there will come a day when I stop drinking from this cup, when it gets too cracked, too broken, and I can't drink from it anymore. And tonight what I want to talk about is the cup that Christ drank on our behalf. A cup that took upon all our brokenness that Christ drank from willingly. And it's something, it's one of the things I think as we read the Bible and we read the narratives around Easter, we sometimes read, oh, the cup, yep, and just sort of keep going. I want to sit in this a bit tonight, and we're going to look over the next few weeks at what exactly Jesus did on the cross. What did Jesus do for us? And tonight we're going to look at the cup, and I want to ask you tonight if you understand the cup that he drank for you the cup that he drank for you. Let's get into the Bible tonight. Matthew chapter 20, as Kara read before, verses 17 to 28. In the passage we heard today, it begins with Jesus taking the 12 disciples aside privately. 
So Jesus did a lot of public ministry. He would say things. He would speak in parables. And they were kind of confusing. They were like riddles. And so people would listen and go, hmm. And the tryhards would be like, ah, oh, yes. And the honest ones would be like, I don't know what this means. <laughs> and so afterwards, he would take the 12 disciples, his closest friends, his followers, aside privately and say, listen, this is what I was saying. I'm sure you understood it. I roll. But just in case, let me explain it for you. And so he took them aside this time, and they were like, yes, this is going to be good stuff. Anytime Jesus takes us aside to explain stuff, it's going to be good. And Jesus says, hey, let me tell you what's about to happen. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Ah, kind of a buzzkill. And not only that, it's the third time he said it. Well, why is he saying it? He says this, the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they'll condemn him to death. Translation, the religious leaders are going to get what they want. They'll get to put me on trial and condemn me to death. And he continues. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised. Now, why? Why did Jesus go into this great detail and tell his disciples about what was going to happen here? This is why. Because in the Old Testament, it says that this would happen. And that's Jesus' Bible. Jesus knew that as the Jewish Messiah, this was going to have to happen to him. He was aware of this and preparing himself for it, and he was trying to prepare his disciples. So this, Jesus says, was something that will happen. It must happen. He's trying to really reiterate it. But on the third day, he says, I will be raised, raised up. And the Greek word that he uses means as if awoken from a sleep or even awoken like from the sleep of death. It is a big, big term, and he's trying to push that on the apostles. And the apostles didn't understand it, which is why they grieved so much after Jesus' crucifixion. But this is what he was trying to say. Jerusalem is where we're going. This, this crucifixion, this is what's going to happen at Jerusalem. Don't get in the way of it. I'm going to be killed. It's what has to happen. And you, apostles, you're on your way to witness this. Your master, your rabbi, your Lord being strung up on a cross, the most brutal form of torture and murder imaginable. And you imagine the grief and, and, the, and the weight on them as they hear this teaching, as they sit in this moment. And into this moment of grief steps the mother of John and James, who, because she's not named in the Bible, I'm going to call Karen. Karen would like to speak to the manager. Karen is having some issues with her gifted children, John and James, who are not being quite given preferential treatment by Jesus, saying, oh, um, I'd like the deluxe package for my car wash, please, but I want to pay regular pricing. That's, that's the Karen experience. Can I have premium unleaded, please? I've got a discount voucher. It's out of date, but I need you to accept it. This is the Karen experience at this moment. So she comes in. And says, on behalf of her sons, John and James, gutless boys that they were, <laughs> says, um, Jesus, listen, great stuff. My, my boys really like you. Thank you for investing in them. Um, I'm going to need you to put them at your right and left hand. Is that right, boys? That's right. On the right and left hand, okay? So when you come into your glory and you're very powerful, which will be very nice, I'm sure, have, have the boys at your right and left. Is that Okay. Good, okay, it's all sorted. If you can't do this, can you point me to the person who can? I need to speak to the person in charge in this moment. Real, I'm sorry, Karens, you don't deserve this, but also, it's a good gag. So, we're in this moment of grief, and at the worst time and in the worst way, John and James's mum is like, hey, how about if my kids have the best spots in the kingdom? What do you reckon? 
<laughs> what a statement. And of course, the other disciples, they're furious. Like, what are you doing? And you'd be furious too if someone did the same thing. And Jesus tries to remind them about something. This is a different kind of kingdom. You're asking, when I come into my rule, when I come into my power, will you let me seat you at my left and right hand in the seats of greatest power and authority and ruling? And Jesus says, that's not the kind of kingdom I'm coming to bring. I think you've got it mistaken. And there must be a part of him that was a bit despondent. He's been teaching about this kingdom for so, so long. And as he's teaching, he's teaching, he's teaching, and eventually they're still not getting it. It must be very frustrating. He says, listen, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Are you getting that, disciples? Uh, probably not. And then he goes on to say, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that sentence mean? Well, the term son of man, which is another one of those Bible phrases we read and go, oh, son of man, I just keep reading. Son of man was a prophetic term from the book of Daniel, and it really talks about the one who would effectively become the embodiment of humanity, the person who on humanity's behalf would become the human, the most human of all humans in some ways. And many connected this with suffering, many others with being the savior of Israel or the coming king, and Jesus took that name for himself. But the second part is arguably even more important. That is, Jesus declares that he, as the Son of Man, has come to give his life as a ransom for many. We don't use that word ransom very often. But a ransom is a payment given to secure freedom from a captor. So somebody who is in bondage, in slavery, we pay a ransom to rescue them from their captor. So Jesus is this prophesied Son of Man, And he's come to give his life as a payment to secure the freedom from a captor. But a payment to who? Who is this captor? And it's here we need to return to the center of this passage. Because when Jesus gets the request from James and John's mother, he answers her immediately, telling the sons, Oh, boys, you don't understand what you're asking. You don't don't really know what you're getting yourself into here. Have you ever been like that with God? You prayed a prayer and then you don't really realize what you've asked? Like, Lord, give me boldness. And suddenly he gives you the, all these opportunities and you're terrified. Lord, give me patience. You ever pay, prayed that one? <laughs> Rookie mistake. Don't pray for patience. If you've got kids and you're praying for patience, no. Pray for alone time. Don't pray for patience. Yeah, You've you got to know what you're praying for. You pray, send me, I'll go. And God's like, here's a one-way ticket to Afghanistan. Good luck. Spread my gospel. Like, oh, when I said send me, I was more thinking the Pacific Islands. Uh, you know, we, we, we pray things without thinking about it. We say things to God without realizing what we're saying. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You think you're asking for glory, Jesus says. But the kind of glory you're asking for, the kind of glory you want, doesn't come about this way. You think you're asking to be raised up like I will be, but it's not the kind of raising up you're expecting. It's not going to be like that. And after all this time, they're still trying to understand the kingdom that Jesus is coming to start. And so Jesus continues, are you able to drink from the cup that I am going to drink from? Are you able to drink from this cup? Now, John and James are good Jewish boys, and they're disciples, so they should be picking up all these Jewish hints that Jesus is dropping like breadcrumbs, because the cup is a really prominent metaphor in Jewish history. And in the Hebrew scriptures, the cup is almost always a metaphor for the just judgment of God against evil, right? Again, it's up on the screen behind me, but it's a metaphor for the just judgment of God against evil. 
The great prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah use this in particular. Isaiah in 51.17 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. See, this is a cup of wrath, of fury, of righteous anger. And similarly, in Jeremiah 25, God tells the prophet Jeremiah to bring the cup of wrath to the nations who have been sinning against him. And he says, just the ones I send you to. And Jeremiah says, which ones? He says, basically North Africa, Europe, Asia, Mediterranean, the Middle East, those ones. Oh, so all of the known world as I understand it. (laughs) Okay, thank you, says Jeremiah. But he does this. And in verse 27, God says to Jeremiah that they will fall down and never get up as a result of the sword. Drinking the cup of wrath in this vision is very much like falling down from having too much wine. That's the idea that the cup of wrath causes you to stagger and fall, but never get up. In Psalm 75 verse 8, Asaph, the author of the psalm, says similarly that there is a cup in the Lord's hand full of wine. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to the dregs. The cup then is a clear symbol of God's anger in the Old Testament. Now we can catch that. But here's the question we don't like to ask in church. Why? Why? Why is God angry? Why is he so mad? Is this before he became a Christian? Like, what, what's going on here? See, we've domesticated the wrath of God in Western church. We don't like to talk about it. Because when we talk about a happy God, we get all the feels. Glory to you, God, if the environment's exactly right for worship. If I'm really feeling it at this moment, glory to you. But if literally anything goes wrong, then I question your existence. Amen. We've been domesticating it in our church. And as a result, we've lost the depth of the meaning of what God has done for us. So, how do we talk about an angry God? Well, for starters, we remember that just because God is angry doesn't mean we should confuse it with our anger. Because when we get angry, we're emotionally all over the place. I think in Australia, we tend to do it one of two ways. Either the most common way is that we just repress it and pretend it doesn't exist. We're very good at that in the church. You watch us repress stuff. We're just <laughs> repressing all this anger. You go, no, 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 I'm not angry, not angry, not angry at all. Instead of processing it, we repress it. And then maybe it comes out in terrible ways. Or we just go the other way and we have no filter whatsoever and we're just keyboard warriors, every comment thread we can possibly imagine, just getting it in like, ah, look at me, look at at this point I'm making, ah, you'll never beat this. Or we get out on the roads, I've argued this before, I think Adelaide drivers honestly are the worst in the country. Like, I just, it's just true. I'm an Adelaide boy born and bred, it's just true, we're shocking. Just let someone in your lane, seriously, it's not that hard, don't speed up, let them in. That's the sort of thing we do as Adelaide drivers, right? And, these are the, and then we get mad at people for daring to want to come in our lane, like, like it's ours. The, and, and so this is the thing. We, we process anger through the filter of our anger, and we're not good at processing our anger. But God is very good at processing his anger. He is fully in control in an understanding of why he is angry. We confuse God's anger at our own, but God is angry for a very specific reason. And a very specific thing, he is angry at sin. Now, now, sin is not the focus of this sermon, so I don't want to try and dive in too deeply. I encourage you, do some research on your own. But this is basically what God's angry at. God is angry at the sin. 
that has taken his vision for creation and twisted it out of shape. He's angry that what he has created to be good, we have turned into evil. Now, this is still a lot for us to handle. But in the Old Testament, even though God is often said to be slow to anger, he seems to mean to be angry quite a lot of the time. You read the Old Testament, see how that jumps out at you. He's angry in particular at Israel's sin, because Israel were called, they were set apart to be God's people. And still, still they twisted and distorted the will of God, even though God gave them a personal relationship and a personal blessing, doing evil instead of good. And sometimes in the Old Testament, which is like two-thirds of the Bible, we forget that, we read this and say, oh, I could never believe in this God, or, or my God would never do this, as if we get to mandate which parts are true and are not true. But not only is this the true God, this is actually the God you want. You want the angry God. You don't want the other God. Think about it. A God without anger is a God without justice. A God without anger is God that looks on all the evil and injustice in our world and shrugs his shoulders. A God without anger is a God that looks at murder and theft and violence against women and adultery and racism and structures of oppression and discrimination and violence to the environment and is indifferent to it. And if that was the case for our God, we would be horrified and we would be right to be horrified. But it is not the case for our God. And if in your spirit there has ever been anything that stirred up against injustice, if you've seen the violence against Asian Americans going on this week in America and something in you has been horrified, that is an echo of the anger of God. It's the justice of God rising up in you going, that is not right. There is evil. There is evil. We don't like to do that. We like everything to be gray in the West. But there is evil. Murder is evil. Like that's, That shouldn't be a complicated sentence, right? Murder is evil, and we have to step into that and say, God is angry about such things, and it's okay, and that because he is angry, there is justice in the world. An angry God is a just God. Now, the temple system was set up to manage our sin problem, but it was always going to be a poor temporary fix, right? That was never going to be permanent. The wrath had to go somewhere. Now, why is that? Well, it's because when a great wrong has been done, a great right needs to be done in return. Make no mistake, when we sin, we do a great wrong to God. We do a great wrong to others. We do a great wrong to ourselves. Don't kid yourself. Sin has a weight. But the thing is, and, and you might be hearing this and going, oh, this doesn't sound like forgiveness. No, no, no. When there's forgiveness, there has to be sacrifice before there can be forgiveness. Now, that might not sound like forgiveness, but let me explain. There is always a cost. If somebody has hurt you, for you to forgive them, there's a cost to you. If somebody has hurt you and they apologize, there is a cost to them. There is, there is a pride cost. There is a relational cost. There is often a time cost. There is a pain that is involved in all kinds of forgiveness. And if it's bad enough, there can be a cost in which you are imprisoned. There is a, literally a freedom cost. There is always a cost when we seek restitution. Parents understand this. We sacrifice a couple of decades or more for our children. It's not just a stereotype of giving up money. It's the giving up of our preferences, the giving up of our time, the things we would rather do. I would rather sit down with like an epic fantasy novel and read that. The kids would get bored. So I read, you know, Grug or whatever. Like, <laughs> I mean, Grug's a banger. Let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> But this is what we do. As parents, we sacrifice. But why do we sacrifice? Because if we don't sacrifice now voluntarily for redemptive good purposes, then our children sacrifice later. 
They sacrifice in the education they aren't able to have. They sacrifice in the relationships they aren't able to have because they have never had it modelled for them. They sacrifice in their uh, ability to manage finances. This is where privilege gaps start having, happening because parents don't adequately sacrifice for their children, don't adequately model them. Tim Keller puts it this way. You can make the sacrifice or they're going to make the sacrifice. It's them or you. Either you suffer temporarily and in a redemptive way or they're going to suffer tragically in a wasteful and destructive way. And he goes on to explain why God's anger is so important to us. Listen to this. Your senses of love and justice are activated together, not in opposition to each other. The more loving you are, the more ferociously angry you will be at whatever harms your beloved. See, as God's beloved children, friends, he hates sin so deeply because he loves us so deeply. It's love for us that drives the anger of God at sin. And this is why... Keller finishes off with this gem. Your conception of God's love, catch this, your conception of God's love will only be as big as your understanding of his wrath. That is, if you think God's anger is this big, then his love will only be this big. But if you can conceive as God's anger at sin is infinite, then his love is infinite. If you understand the wrath he has at evil and distortion, then you can understand the love that he has for those that the evil and distortion is put upon. And that's you and me. God is furiously angry at the injustice of sin because of extraordinary love for us. And all life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. All of it is, one way or another. We substitute one thing for another. Time now, time later. Love now, love later. We're substituting. Now all this brings us back to Jesus as it always should. In our passage, Jesus is saying that sin is holding people captive and that his life would be the ransom, the price to pay to set them free. But why? Why is God sending Jesus to do this? Why is he forcing him? Some have called this divine child abuse. You could say that. It's a ludicrous argument. It's very difficult to back up with anything credible because Jesus is God. And though he's limited by human form, even in human form, we see him willingly take this burden on himself. This is what it says in John chapter 18, 11. Jesus tells Peter, as he's being arrested, shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? Peter's trying to respond by getting violent. He's trying to stop this happening to Jesus. Jesus says, no, 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 no. This has to happen. Put the sword away. Peter commits violence. Jesus heals. And then he lets himself be taken over by violence. See, Jesus knew that for all his miracles... His transformational teachings, the way he created a, a radical sense of belonging community, the way he absolutely superimposed the, the understanding of God across the Jewish system, unless he gave his life, all of it would be in vain. He knew he had to be the ransom. And it was in the Garden of Gethsemane, even before the cross, that this really hits home. He goes to pray by himself, and he prays these simple and painful words, Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, he says this, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. In his moment of greatest pain, Jesus knew. He knew the cup of God's wrath had to fall on him, that only he could drink it. He would prefer not to because he was human, but he had to because he was God. 
And the great theologian John Stott says this, In this moment, their wills, the Father and the Son, coincided in the perfect self-sacrifice of love. At the Garden of Gethsemane, the cup of God's wrath met the willingness of God's Son, and he laid down his life there, allowing Judas to betray him, allowing the guards to arrest him, and allowing the centurions to nail him to a cross. And I love the way that this put this is put in the song, In Christ Alone. Here are the lyrics. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Then in the next verse, and as he stands in victory, since cursed has lost its grip on me and on you. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Friends, hear this. We've got to stop trying to civilize God's wrath. Make it seem like anger was back then, but now is, is just the love. We just get the love part. He's just loving now. All the anger's gone. No, God is angry at sin. He's angry at the way it is distorting and twisting your life and mine. Jesus bought your salvation on the cross. And while there is much more to it than just satisfying God's anger, there certainly isn't less. We're going to dig into that in the next few weeks. But the cup that Jesus willingly drank deserves our respect. So... As we begin to come to a close, we need to understand what truly happened when Jesus drank the cup. Because friends, don't miss this. Jesus didn't have to save us. It was his choice. And God didn't have to send Jesus. That was his choice. God the Father is not lonely up there in heaven. Like he's not checking his watch going, when will they get here? You know, he's not bored. He's fully satisfied. He's the Godhead three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's no sense of loneliness. There's no sense of isolation or abandonment or boredom. God does not need us, but he loves us. Yeah. And he chooses to rescue us. He chooses to ransom us. He chooses to give us the goodness of all creation, saying, go, make it your playground. Go, spread out over all the world. And he knows what will happen. And he does it anyway. That's the love of God for us. Wayne Gruden put it this way, God didn't have to save us, he chose to. We judge God's vision of justice as fair or unfair without full understanding. Yet in his grace and kindness, he's chose to save us because love and justice came together on the cross. God chose to save us by dying in our place. It's not divine child abuse, it's a divine adoption system. That's what God's done. He's created a system so that every single one of us could be brought back as daughters and sons, Amen. So let's go back to our passage. Jesus has told the disciples now three times exactly what's happened. They're sort of listening. Knowing full well that he had to be the one to bear the weight of God's anger against sin. And Jesus says to James and John, as we said before, you do not know what you are asking. And of course they don't. James and John, they think they're asking for glory here on earth. And not only is Jesus not talking about being glorified that way, he's talking about taking all the wrath of sin on him. They can't bear that. And after they tell him, yes, Jesus, we can drink from your cup, filled with ego and with glory in their eyes, he tells them, sure, you'll drink from it. And they do a little bit. They know suffering. John dies isolated and alone on the island of Patmos, exiled there. James, his brother, is beheaded by King Herod. We read about that in Acts chapter 12. He becomes one of the first Christian martyrs for his faith. And so they drink a little bit from the cup of suffering. But Jesus was speaking honestly to them. It wasn't up to him who was going to be on his left and right. 
Because the moment that Jesus came into his greatest glory was not one where he's sitting on a throne. It's when he's strung up on a cross. And when he's strung up on the cross to his left and his right are prisoners hurling insults as the savior of the world slowly bleeds to death, bearing the weight of the fury of God on himself. He says, John, James, it's not up to me and you don't want it. It's not up to me who gets to put those prisoners there, but the cup, friends, the cup that James and John will drink from is a different one. It's a cup that Jesus lifts at the Last Supper. It's a cup of life. See, James and John are saying, yeah, 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 I can drink from the cup you drink from. And Jesus is saying, well, luckily for you, I'm giving you a different cup. See, Jesus says at communion at the Last Supper, in some of the lyrics we think about as we sing that song, remember, I pour out my blood for you as a new promise. And every time you drink this wine, when you remember me, you remember this new promise, this new covenant, this new life I'm giving you because I drank the cup for you. I drank your dirty dishwater so that you could drink fresh wine. I drank your sin so that you can drink life. That's the cup of God's wrath. Ben, you guys can come back up. My chipped cup here, sometimes this stuff just writes itself, okay? My, my friend who gave this to me, her name is Grace. Grace gave me this chipped cup. It's very convenient for sermon analogies. And for you and I, the cup that we are given by Jesus is an act of grace, right? You're catching it? I don't need to lay this down anymore, right? God chose to give up his life on the cross for us. He chose to receive the fullness of the divine wrath, the divine anger upon himself. He chose to give us new life through his grace. And so we drink the wine of the new covenant at communion because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath on the cross. Jesus paid it all. Now, if you've been here a bit and you've heard me preach before, yeah, this is pretty heavy. This is a weight to this. I wonder if you can feel that tonight. You know, it can be hard to sit in this. And there's meant to be a weight. You should feel the weight, but you shouldn't feel the burden. There's a weight because of the cost that it cost Jesus. But the cost all fell on Jesus. Jesus paid it all for you. You don't need to carry that burden. We need to be aware of the weight so that we don't trivialize the sacrifice of God, but we don't need to fear the burden because God has done it for you. You're free. You are free. It's heavy to consider, but it's light for us to bear. But I sensed today as I was praying over this service, I just said, God, what do you want me to say? He said, you've got to help people stop grabbing at the cup. Stop grabbing at the cup to try and take it away from me. Yeah, that's what Peter kept doing. Jesus would say, I'm going to go die in Jerusalem. And Peter would say, no, no, God, we couldn't possibly. And Jesus is like, can you, can you not stop me doing the stuff I'm meant to do, please? Like, I'm the Messiah here. Get in line, you know. <laughs> he never speaks like that. But this is what Peter did. Or maybe you're like James and John, who they see the cup and they see glory. They see blessing. They see favor. They see the things they want. Life molded in their image rather than God's image. Maybe that's really what you've been wrestling with. I mean, you might be like Peter 
And you're trying to say, no, 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 God, you don't need to save me. You don't need to die for me. I've got this. I've got it covered. But maybe you're more like James and John. We're saying, well, God, you can do this, but on my terms, thanks. You can do this if it fits my life, my style, what I like to do. And God's saying, I'm already doing it, and I'm doing it on my terms. It's a gift for you, but you've got to accept it. Or maybe, just maybe, you've begun to trivialize the cup of God's wrath, to trivialize the cross, and you've forgotten that Jesus paid it all. He bore the ultimate sacrifice so that you and I would have relationship with God forever. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We would love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to financially support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.